This morning we come to the end of Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles. But certainly this is not the end of the story. A story that began to advance on the day of Pentecost and continues to this very day. As we look back over the course of history as it's described in the book of Acts, we see that the apostles were constantly under great persecution, both from within the church and from without. And the message of the cross was exceedingly offensive to the Jews, and it was utter folly to the Gentiles. Yet the church of Jesus Christ grew exponentially in those early days. And as we've studied of late the life of the Apostle Paul, we see that he was persecuted relentlessly by the Jewish elite to the point where finally he had to appeal to Caesar to find justice. And ultimately, of course, this fulfilled the Lord's promise to him that he would one day stand before Caesar and preach the gospel in Rome. He had spent two years under house arrest in Caesarea. He had endured three hearings by Roman judges who could find no law that he had violated. And now finally, after a horrific ordeal at sea and a shipwreck and a wonderful winter ministry on an island called Malta, he finally makes his way to Rome. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 17. Follow along as I read these last verses of Acts. Acts 28:17. And it happened that after three days he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said unto him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. 
The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet to your father, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive for the heart of this people has become dull and with their ears, they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. I believe that the Holy Spirit would have us examine at least three categories of spiritual wisdom that he intends for us to grasp from this text this morning, each having very practical application in our lives if we have ears to hear. First of all, we will see the principles of Jewish evangelism, evangelism not only for the Jews, but certainly in how we could approach Jewish people. We will see this as we examine Paul's model for presenting the truth of the gospel to his kinsmen. Secondly, we will see the polarization of the gospel, how the gospel of grace will inevitably divide men, whether they be friend or family. And thirdly, we will see the pathos of unbelief as we witness the final days of Israel rejecting her Messiah, preparing them to move inexorably toward a day of captivity and suffering. And once again, we see as we look at this text that Paul was driven by a passion to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. To preach the transforming gospel of Christ. Nothing else mattered to him. You will recall that he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul exhorted the Corinthians and all of us in 1 Corinthians 4 to be imitators of me, he said, just as I also am of Christ. And dear friends, I fear that as we compare our lives to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, we all experience great conviction. I fear that our attitudes, our schedules, our checkbooks all betray a radically different set of motivations. The New Testament reveals that Paul had an unwavering Christ-like love for all, all believers, but especially for his kinsmen, the Jews, God's beloved enemy. In Romans 11:28, Paul told the Gentile believers at Rome, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, referring to the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, literally God's election, They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, referring to the patriarchs. And we 
will witness this love in Paul's faithful witness to Israel as we look at this text this morning. First, I draw your attention to the principles of evangelism, especially Jewish evangelism. Verse 17, we read, and it happened that after three days, he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. So, in other words, he comes to the Rome and the first thing he does is call together the Jewish elite. And we don't know why he waited three days. The text doesn't tell us. Perhaps he needed that time to rest and to pray and to prepare himself for the inevitable conflict that would ensue. But I want you to notice that he called them together. This was his priority. To preach the gospel, as he said in Romans 1:16, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Thus, the title of my discourse to you this morning is to the Jew first. Now, sadly, Jewish evangelism has fallen on hard times in many Christian circles. It's not a priority in many sectors of evangelicalism, especially in reformed circles such as ours. Many times it's almost as if we say to the Jew last, if at all. Unfortunately, many hold to a philosophical system that insists that the Christian church has permanently replaced Israel. This is sometimes known as historic amillennialism or Augustinian Roman Catholic eschatology, replacement theology, supersessionism. You hear these terms. And sadly, many of these people, not all, but many that I have read, that I have talked with, see the Jew as basically a, a perfidious, nefarious, evil Christ killer. And therefore, they are indifferent towards them and many times show contempt toward them. If you don't believe me, just read the scholars that describe their feelings towards the Jews that hold to these positions. In fact, in Luther's last sermon, we know that, before, that right before his death, that he called for the Jews to be driven out of Germany. Beloved, I would submit to you that true doctrine would never lead to contempt for any man, Jew or Gentile. And it's little wonder that historically Jewish people react with instant revulsion to the anti-Judaic Christian genre that so often comes from this system of eschatology. And I might also add that not all of the reformers held to such a view, like the Puritan theologian uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, or later on Horatius Bonar, later on from there men like J.C. Ryle, uh, Charles Spurgeon, and so forth. But these and many others today rejoice in what we would call a premillennial eschatology that contends for the present as well as the future hope of Israel, of national Israel, Rooted not in some philosophy, but in a consistent hermeneutic and biblical exegesis. So with great compassion, we see here, Paul calls his countrymen together in verses 17 through 21. You notice here that he, he builds a rapport with them. He, he wanted them to understand that he was not an enemy of the Jews, but that he had been falsely accused and therefore he wants to explain the reason for his house arrest and why he appealed to Caesar. 
And in verse 22, we see that they indicate to him that they were unaware of his situation. Notice the text says, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. Nothing has changed, has it? True biblical Christianity is spoken against everywhere. And so Paul does not go on the offense. He remains on the defense. He explains his situation in these first verses. And then he establishes a relationship with them by starting, or I should say by stating, why he is wearing his chains. And notice what he says. Verse 20, at the end of verse 20, he says, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. I want you to notice that he does not say for the hope of the Gentile church. You see, he did not preach to them as if the Jews had been racially disenfranchised by God and absorbed somehow into the Gentile church. You see, he gave them, and you see this all through the New Testament, he gave them hope that the unbelieving branches of Israel would be saved and become part of what he called in Romans 11:5 the remnant chosen by grace. That is the true Israel of God, as he described them in Galatians 6.16. I want to digress for a moment. Beloved, please hear this, because I want to make sure you understand it. And this text really gives us an opportunity to discuss this for a moment. You will look in vain in the New Testament to find a single passage that indicates that the church has permanently replaced Israel. Yes, temporarily it has been displaced, but permanently it will never be replaced. You will look in vain to discover that somehow God's unconditional, unilateral, irreversible covenant to Abraham concerning his future plan for Israel's, uh, for Israel as a nation has somehow been abrogated. And that all of those promises in the Old Testament with respect to his chosen, his elect people, all of those promises are now spiritually fulfilled in the church. You'll not find that in Scripture. You will not find that somehow ethnic Israel has been absorbed into the universal Christian church. You don't see that in Scripture. And such a view must go to great lengths to deny a, a, a normal, the normal meaning of Scripture. Throughout his ministry, Paul continued to identify himself as an Israelite. He was unambiguous with this. Now, if the Gentile church had been replaced or had permanently replaced Israel, why wouldn't Paul use this opportunity to tell them so? What possible relevance would his words be in verse 20 when he said, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel? Why would he say that if Israel no longer had any hope? Or would you have me believe that somehow Israel really doesn't refer to Israel, but it refers to the church? If, if that is the case, the text once again begs for relevance. Why would he say, I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the, whole, of, of the church? 
Can you imagine if Paul's witness to the Jews on this day, his Jewish kinsmen, can you imagine if his if his witness held to this Augustinian kind of Roman Catholic eschatology? Imagine what he would have to say to them. My dear kinsmen, I want you to come together, but I want you to understand that the Old Testament promises for a messianic kingdom no longer exist literally. You must understand that God has changed his mind now. He has rescinded all of his covenants to Abraham that were reiterated and expanded even in the new covenant in in, uh, Jeremiah 31. And now, because of the revelation of Jesus Christ, a normative understanding of and a literal understanding of the Old Testament has been nullified. And as you come together to meet with me this morning, I want you to hear that the good news that I bring you is that if you place your trust in Jesus of Nazareth, your Messiah, you can live in the kingdom now, spiritually speaking. But you must understand that all of the literal promises concerning your ethnic future, I should say our ethnic future, our our national identity, all of the promises with respect to the holy land of promise, all of those are to be understood now as figuratively, as merely a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men that is now contained within the Gentile church. Therefore, if you will become a Christian, what you must understand is you must lose your distinction as a Jew, as an ethnic Jew. You must jettison all of your heritage as a Jew. You must jettison the idea that somehow you really were a chosen people ethnically. And you must understand that Yes, at once he chose you by his grace. You were Israel, his elect. But because your sin was so heinous, he has had to rescind those promises to you and give it to another people. Can you imagine what the response would have been? So much for the hope of Israel. Well, beloved, I don't believe that's what we must say. And I've had opportunity to witness to many Jewish people And I hope I have more in days to come. But I believe that we can say, as what Paul said here in Acts 28.20, I bring you the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of the hope of Israel. I want you to understand something. Remember that he cried out the same thing to the Sanhedrin in chapter 23 and verse 6. Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now, what would the Jews possibly think he's referring to. Well, immediately they would have known about the resurrection of the dead. It was vividly described in Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. It was a picture of the restoration of of Israel back to life, a resurrection of true salvation and spiritual life. It was a, a, a description here of where God promises to resurrect the, the nation of Israel by his grace and produce within them genuine spiritual regeneration. This was the same defense he gave to Agrippa in, in Acts 26, verse 6. He said, I am standing trial, catch this now, for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And so again, my dear Gentile brethren, May I remind you of Paul's admonition to us all 
in Romans chapter 11, verse 18, he says, do not be arrogant. We're talking to the Gentiles now. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, referring to the Jews. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Then he goes on in verse 24 and he says, God will one day graft the natural branches back into their own olive tree. And in verse 28, he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, literally his election, from that standpoint, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So, beloved, don't be bamboozled by the Bible answer man who preaches something very contrary to this. Please understand the abiding nature of that unilateral, unconditional Abrahamic covenant. You must not confuse that with the temporal nature of the of the bilateral, conditional Mosaic covenant that came about some 400 years later. You see, the New Testament makes a clear distinction between the two. The law, according to Paul in Galatians 3.19, was added because of transgression. And that's an idea that completely conflicts with the abiding and progressive nature of God's unconditional promise to Abraham. Well, the point here is Paul and these Jews, they understood all of this. And sometimes all of this gets clouded now in our day with all of the other stuff that comes out there that, that would confuse us. But they understood God's promise to Abraham. And may I remind you of what that was in Genesis 12. It contained four elements. Number one, the seed. And I'm sure Paul explained to them that the promise of the seed would now refer to Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ. God also promised, made promises with respect to a land, a specific geographical territory that would be set apart for his people. A place where he would one day dwell with them in a holy and intimate union. A promised geographical territory that is perpetuated as an essential element, even of the new covenant, as we read earlier in Jeremiah 31. You can read that as well in Ezekiel 11 and 36 and so forth. There was also the promise of a nation where Abraham's magnificent reputation and his legacy would be displayed materially and spiritually and socially, and the glory of God's grace would be put on display as he brings back his beloved enemy and breathes spiritual life into them. And finally, it was a promise of divine blessing and protection that I will curse those who curse you and I will bless those who bless you. And these great promises are reiterated over and over and over again in the word of God. The Jews never thought for one second that God would violate his sworn oath to them on, on this behalf. So, beloved, don't be misled. God has not abandoned his people any more than he would abandon us. You read Romans 9, 10 and 11. Romans 9, Paul speaks about uh, Israel's election. Romans 10, it speaks about Israel's defection. And Romans 11, he speaks of Israel's salvation. And again, if you don't understand God's faithfulness to Israel, you simply do not understand Bible prophecy. Now, with this in mind, we return to Paul's preaching to the Jews. Verse 23, and when they had set a day for him, 
Isn't that interesting? They literally schedule a specific day to hear him present his case, present the gospel. It says they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. I want you to notice Paul's method here of evangelism, especially Jewish evangelism that emerges from Paul's faithful and fearless witness to his kinsmen. First of all, I want you to notice what he did not do. Notice that he did not appeal to their felt needs. He, he did not come to them and say, you know, guys, I just want to present something to you that's going to really help you feel more fulfilled in life. I, I, I want uh, my emphasis to be on love and tolerance and how to be successful and how to find purpose in life and how to have better self-esteem or whatever, which is the typical fare of most preaching today. But rather, it says he was explaining in the original language that means to to uh, set forth or to lay out. He was explaining to them by solemnly testifying or literally bearing witness about the kingdom of God. That was his emphasis, the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Bottom line, what he did is he preached to them the veracity of the gospel of Christ. And he did so by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. Well, what's the kingdom of God? Well, as you look in Acts, you see that it's this phrase is used seven times where it includes the idea of the sphere of God's saving purposes as he rules in the hearts of believers but also it stretches beyond that to refer to a future rule. In fact, you must understand that nowhere in the New Testament do we find the preachers asserting that the kingdom of God had already been fully and finally established. Remember, the disciples during this period were still looking for that kingdom. And, and there's not even a hint that they believed that it now existed spiritually in the church. May I remind you of Acts chapter 3, in verses 19 through 21. And there we read how that two times Peter made reference to the coming era of the millennial kingdom promised in the Old Testament, a time of refreshing and restoration Terms that are used in the Old Testament and the New Testament describing this glorious day. And there he exhorted his fellow Jews and he said, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until I catch this. Until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And so, again, we see here that he's explaining to them. He's testifying to them about the kingdom of God. He's trying to persuade them, the text says, concerning Jesus. And what's he using to do this? The law of Moses and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. This was always Paul's method. Effective Jewish evangelism, dear friends, requires us to be familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. 
Now, as I thought about this text, and I want you to somehow enter into his house with me for a moment, can't you imagine, according to this text, there, there's a number of the Jews. They've just packed this place out. They want to hear from this, this great Pharisee what he has to say about this controversial subject, this, this sect called the way. They want to hear about that. And can't you imagine that the Apostle Paul has laid out before him on, on a large table? And again, the text doesn't say this. This is pure conjecture. But I would imagine that something like this happened. That he had the scrolls of the books of Moses laid out before him so that they could see. And as we read in this text now, he's going to persuade them concerning Jesus by going back to the law of Moses and the prophets. I can just imagine Paul explaining to them the magnificent symbolism of the innocent substitute that God had to kill there in the garden to provide a covering for the guilt of the sin of Adam and Eve. The first time blood had to be spilt. Can't you imagine him explaining the seed of the woman that would one day defeat the servant or the serpent and that that seed would have been. The Lord Jesus Christ. Can't you imagine him explaining the whole notion of Melchizedek and the relationship between Jesus as now that great priest and king? I can hear him describing the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and the whole issue of the justification of Abraham by faith and the symbolism of the sacrifice of Isaac and how that that pointed to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. Can't you hear him talking to them about the Passover Lamb and the exodus out of Egypt, all of which foreshadowed the spotless Lamb that God would supply, the Lord Jesus? Can't you hear him opening up the books and describing to them how that Christ was the fulfillment of the bronze serpent in the wilderness, the fulfillment of the endless sacrifices of the people, that he was the fulfillment of the blood that was spilt on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant that contained the books of the law, the the tablets of stone that had been violated. That now that mercy seat, which was... According to the Septuagint, the Hilasterion or the propitiation. Now that Jesus was the Hilasterion, the mercy seat. As we read in 1 John 2, 2, 2, in 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Can't you hear Paul persuading them that we could never enter into the veil, into the Holy of Holies? Apart from Christ. But what happened when Christ died on the cross? That veil was rent in two. Can't you hear him describing how he was the one that was prophesied that, that, that would suffer a lamb that would open not his mouth. And that he would be the one that the prophets predicted would die and be resurrected and will return just as he promised. Can't you hear him explaining all of those glorious truths? And I can just imagine looking upon the faces of many of those Jews to see tears rolling down their cheeks as they began to understand by the power of the Holy Spirit for the first time who Jesus really was, while others bristled with contempt and folded their arms and gritted their teeth. 
This was the impassioned heart, dear friends, of the Apostle Paul. As he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Oh, dear child of God, please hear this. Would that we share his love for the Jew and be as bold as him in our witness. Secondly, we see the polarization of the gospel in verse 24. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. What a sad statement. Yet this will always be the case. Every minister of the gospel, every servant of the Lord who has ever borne testimony of his saving grace understands that there will be two ledgers. One will have a long list of names on it and one will be very short. Those who believe will be in the short list. Those who don't in the long. There's many who will enter through the wide gate and go down the broad way of destruction. And those who do believe will often become the enemies of those who don't. Notice again in verse 25, it says, and, and, and when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. In other words, they began to, to quarrel with one another in the midst of all of this. Verse 29, jump over there. And when he had spoken these words... The Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Dear friends, you must understand that true gospel preaching will always be tantamount to throwing the cat in amongst the pigeons. And living out genuine saving faith will never be popular. It will inevitably be met with hostility. Remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is why it is so ridiculous to try to accommodate the gospel and Christianity to our culture. In Luke 12, Jesus said, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? He went on to say, I I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And on it goes. And I know some of you experience that in your life. Family members who resent your love for Christ. And unfortunately, that's the way it's going to be. But what should we do to those who refuse to believe? Isn't that a great question? What do you do when you witness to somebody and they begin to, 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 to quarrel and with you and with others and finally they just kind of get up in a huff and they begin to walk out? What do we do? We just tell them, have a good day. Sorry I offended you. No, dear friends, as we look at this text, what we must do is use the word of God to warn them of the consequence of their choice. Notice in verse 25, and when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. In other words, he sees what's happening. They're arguing amongst themselves. Now they begin to get up and huff and to leave. And Paul's going to have one parting word. Wait a minute. Hang on here. 
before those of you who are angry leave this morning or this afternoon or probably would have been all through the day. Before that happens, I want to give you one parting word. And here's what he said. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet, to your father, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their ears or their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. Boy, so much for being seeker sensitive. Dear friends, when a man's soul is in eternal peril, it is time for truth, not sensitivity. Mothers and fathers, I would submit to you, if you have a blind child and suddenly you see that child walking towards a cliff, knowing that that child could walk off from that cliff, I hardly think that you would say to them, darling, please hang on a second. Please listen to mommy for a minute. Um, you, you, you need to stop here because there's some danger in front of you. Is that what you're going to say? No, you're going to scream out to that child as loudly as you can. Stop now. Stop. I warn you. And that must be our mindset. So it was with Paul. And with the words of Isaiah ringing in their ears, many unbelievers left that meeting. And for most of them, perhaps all of them, those words would continue to haunt them the rest of their life. And even now, throughout their existence in an eternal hell. But for those who believed and others who wanted to hear the truth, verse 30 says, that Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. I might also add that it was during this two years that he wrote Ephesians and Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. Well, we've examined the principles of Jewish evangelism. We've witnessed the polarization of the gospel and finally, we see the pathos of unbelief as we see these Jews leave. Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, again, records the advance of the gospel. That's its purpose. That advance from Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the earth, just as Jesus had commissioned just before he ascended into heaven. And sadly, for 40 years now, since the resurrection of Christ, the Jews had heard the gospel of grace. They had heard of their Messiah, yet the majority of them rejected him outright. And soon God's judgment would fall upon them. In fact, from the day that these Jews walked out, about actually less than ten years later, the Romans under General Titus, would surround the city of Jerusalem with three legions on the western side and then a fourth legion on the Mount of Olives. History tells us that they allowed pilgrims to enter into the city 
during that time of siege, pilgrims to come and celebrate Passover, but they had a diabolical motivation for doing so. He would let they would let them go in, but not let them come out, thereby putting further stress on the food supply of the people within the city. Eventually, the Romans took the city. They slaughtered about 1.1 million Jews. Many thousands of other Jews were taken as slaves. And many others were dispersed to arenas around the empire to be butchered in those arenas to amuse the public. The magnificent temple was utterly destroyed just as Jesus promised in Matthew 24 two when he said that not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Those stones were absolutely enormous. Some of them that they've excavated underneath are as big as 40 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet. And what the Romans did to destroy all of those massive stones is they built absolutely enormous scaffolds. And they filled it with all kinds of wood and other flammable materials and they set it on fire. And that fire then crumbled those stones into nothing but ashes. And then they would sift through the ashes to gather the melted gold. The pathos of unbelief. When I think of that slaughter, I I can hear Jesus saying in Matthew 23... Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And I find Luke's last record of Paul's parting words to his unbelieving kinsmen to be most intriguing and certainly to be the most infuriating to the Jews. Notice in verse 28, he says, let it be known to you, therefore. In other words, in light of your unbelief, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will also listen. Now, Paul had previously explained this remarkable statement in much more vivid detail. We read about it in Romans 11 that I've alluded to earlier. In verse 17, he said, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, referring to the Gentiles, if you were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And he goes on in verse 19, he says, you Gentiles will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you. God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. We're confronted once again with the question that we must answer, and that is, is Israel's rejection final? And I hope you understand the answer is no. 
Paul answered that question in Romans 11:1. He said, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The idea of foreordination, of foreloving, of election. It's not the God that we serve. And in verse 23, he adds, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. John MacArthur has well said, and I quote, the day is coming when, quote, all Israel will be saved. Romans 11:26. He went on to add, Israel's rejection will not cancel God's promises to bless her believing remnant. The day of Israel's faith in Jesus Christ. Is yet to come. Zechariah 12.10. And let me read that passage to you. There God speaks through his prophet and says. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The spirit of grace and of supplication. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Oh, dear Christian, I, I pray that each of you will share in the future hope of Israel. Celebrating the most magnificent demonstration of sovereign grace in all of redemptive history. And I would like to read to you a quote from the great 19th century Scottish theologian and preacher. And hymn writer, Horatius Bonar, I believe you have this even in your bulletin. Here's what he said, and I quote, Israel has been a long time neglected, persecuted, and grievously wronged. Let us go like Jeremiah and sit down with them amidst their ruins and in a sympathetic spirit tell them of the restorer of Israel. The almighty repairer of the great breach, the true antitype of their own Zerubbabel who can yet build them up and holy temple and habitation of God through the Spirit. While we mourn over their great griefs, their mighty wrongs, and their yet mightier sins, let us gently tell them of the man of sorrows, who is the all-sufficient consolation of Israel. We carry God's own message, prepared by the hand of mercy for the heart of the miserable, and which can, by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, win its way through a mountain of stone and a heart of stubbornly resolute hardness, Go, Christian, to thy wandering and fugitive brother. Tell him of blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Blood which can cleanse even those who have gone in the way of Cain. Go in the spirit of Paul with our heart's desire and prayer to God that Israel might be saved. Go praying in the Holy Spirit and you will give no heed to those who say that it is of no use preaching the gospel to the Jew. It is of use. Facts abundantly prove it. God has owned his own word and is still blessing his servants. Many of the sons of Israel have been turned to the Lord their God. Several of them are now the ministers of Christ to the Gentiles or to their own countrymen. And how welcome are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. We should pray earnestly for Israel's final restoration, even for her national glory and spiritual salvation. And so doing, we pray for the blessedness of the earth. And the life of the world which God is pleased to conjointly establish. 
but believing that God has at the present time a remnant chosen by His grace, we should give, pray, and labor if we can somehow make the Jew jealous and save some of them. Romans eleven fourteen. Well, as I close this morning, I want to finally turn to those of you who are strangers of His grace. Perhaps you are like the Jew. You are very religious. You are moral. You are confident in yourself that you have the ability to impress God with your good works. That you're really a pretty good person. And you are quite certain that somehow your righteousness outweighs your sin on the scales of divine justice. That somehow you can stand before God's bar of justice and say, God, as you look at me, I'm sure you can see I am worthy of your holiness and I am worthy to enter into your kingdom. My friend, if you believe this to be your ticket to heaven, I would humbly but forthrightly submit to you that you are a fool. I would say to you that if you believe that the sufferings of Christ were unnecessary on your behalf, you are a fool. Your righteousness will not be your ticket to paradise, but dear friends, it will be your passport to perdition. And for you who sit week after week after week in this church and in churches like it, hearing the teaching of the word, And yet you remain unmoved. You claim to believe the gospel, but it has made no impact on your life. For those of you who age physically, and we can all see it in ourselves. And yet as we look at you, you have not moved one whit to become more mature in Christ than the very first day that you claimed to believe in Him. For those of you that we can look at and we can see absolutely no distinction between your life and the world, I would ask you, if He truly is your Savior, why is He not your Lord? I fear the great hammer of the Word perhaps has hardened your heart rather than softened it. For those of you who routinely hear spiritual truth and spiritual truth somehow roll off of you like water rolling off a slab of granite. Those of you who bristle when you hear certain things that would come from a pulpit such as this rather than be broken by it. Those of you who have no love for that which is holy and you have no hatred for that which is not and you have no discernment to know the difference. I would simply say to you that you are a stranger to the Holy Spirit. You are a stranger of God's grace. And my heart breaks for you. Because unless you repent, unless you break over your sin and truly believe. You will one day look upon the one who would have been your savior and you will find him to be your judge. Those of you that are a stranger to the Holy Spirit, 
even though you may come to this church. Those of you who are a stranger to prayer, who are a stranger to the word, who are a stranger to Christian service. Those of you who really know you have no secret devotion to God. I would simply ask you, you hypocrite, how long will you deceive yourself? How long will you deceive yourself? Would you be like those Jews who would claim those very things about their religiosity, yet they marched out of that room with Paul in unbelief? Will you go down to the pit with a hymn book in your hand and a Bible in your other hand? All I can say is, oh, would that you truly be broken this day and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. May the convicting work of the Spirit of God persuade you to these ends. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those to whom I have just addressed on your behalf that today they would honestly examine their heart and recognize that they are phony, that they are a hypocrite. Oh, Lord, would that they be saved today. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would prick their heart. You would overwhelm them with the grief of their iniquity. Lord, I pray that somehow by your power, you would cause them to begin to feel the flames and smell the smoke. Lord, I pray that they would not leave this place in proud unbelief like those Jews, but that today would be the day of their salvation. And Lord, for those of us who know and love you, may we take the truths of your word and apply them to our hearts. May they resonate within our minds in the days to come. May they give us perspective as we live out our lives in these final days of such profound apostasy. And may we look forward to your soon return. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.